So that's the first lesson. Let us turn from all rebellion. Let us bow before the King of Kings and come into his service out of his salvation. But the second lesson is this. Genesis 10 calls us in the midst of our warm and loving worship and fellowship to remember what the world is like all around us. It wakes us up to reality, to realize that we are surrounded by countless millions of the enemies of God. We live in the midst of rebellious humanity. We need to reckon with that. We need to reckon with that with with terrorism all around us today. We've been wonderfully spared for five years. We don't know when the next attack against Americans will come. But we need to reckon with the fact we live in the midst of rebellious humanity. Humanity sometimes forces wars. And so we remember today, don't we? And yesterday, we remember veterans with great appreciation. For veterans are people who have been willing to stand up against rebellious humanity, to protect the freedom of, of free peoples like ourselves. So we owe so much to our veterans. We should be filled with gratitude under God to them. Even now for our military personnel, how we should pray for them, how we should lift them up, how we should thank God for them. But also we should be praying now that we will not join the rank of the persecuted Christians. We should be praying now that we're prepared for whatever, for whatever rebellion of humanity will be coming against us one day. And perhaps sooner than we think that our souls will be prepared and our minds prepared to take it in, to, to, to respond not like Nimrod, but to respond like the Lord Jesus in humility. And follow him, whatever the persecution may be. Rebellious humanity, that's what we see here. But happily, there is yet hope. There's great hope, actually. And I want to show you that in our second thought. And more briefly now, with replacement humanity. Replacement humanity. Remember, Moses is writing this book of Genesis to the Hebrew people who are traveling to the promised land. And to them, the number 70 was extremely important. It was their special number. Genesis 46, 27 says, And the sons of Joseph, which were born him in Egypt, were three score and ten. And again, Exodus 1, verse 5, And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls. Seventy nations. But now, focus on God's people, seventy souls. Is that just coincidence? I don't believe so. Moses has this parallel in mind as he writes this chapter. He's the author of both chapters, you see. He's saying to us here that Israel is the new humanity. Israel is the replacement 70. The godly 70, replacing the rebellious 70. Israel, the Hebrews, are to be the image bearers of God. They are to carry out God's purposes. God is going to now work through this 70. God is going to move them, call them, choose them to live to his glory, to do what mankind was originally created to do. 
God has replaced, you see, the rebellious nations with his chosen people to be his servants. Replacement, humanity. Now, there's a very interesting verse in Deuteronomy 32 that affirms this. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. Here, Moses links these two numbers together. Let let me quote it. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. What a fascinating verse. When When he divided mankind, in other words, he set up boundaries of the people according to the numbers, 70, of the sons of Israel. Moses makes the link specific and clear. He says this is God's replacement humanity. Now this is an amazing thing. We know this, of course, is true from from other texts as well, even if the number 70 here is not to be taken up this way, although I believe it is. But God worked his special purposes through Israel, who who now replaces the nations of the earth as, as as a chosen people through whom God is going to particularly work. But it's amazing because many of the nations listed in Genesis 10 are remarkably civilized nations. And Moses is writing, for example, the great Sumerian civilization, the Babylonian and Egyptian civilizations are at their height. And boys and girls, if you know much about ancient civilizations, you know that some of these people were had astounding developments, uh, modern inventions, uh, remarkable nations. The Aryan people, for example, were invading India when Moses was writing this. And they were setting up a great empire there. And the Shang dynasty was also erected in China. A sophisticated and cultural people. And yet God passes by all these peoples. And all these great and sophisticated nations and civilizations and empires. And he comes to little piddly Israel. And he says in Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 through Moses, The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people to himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. You, Israel, are my treasured possession. The next verse says, The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. For you were the fewest of all people. You see what God does. He does something remarkable. Out of all these millions among the 70 nations, he doesn't choose a nation with great achievements or splendor or power or wisdom or the most advanced culture or civilization, but he chooses despised little Israel. And Moses says again and again to Israel, isn't it amazing? Remember, God has sovereignly, graciously chosen you as replacement humanity, even though there's nothing in you that would have been naturally desirable for him to choose. And what an encouragement that is. What an encouragement that is for Christians in the United States of America today. Who are we in this very sophisticated, technological, modern world Who are Bible believers and born-again people? Are we just leftovers from from earlier history? Well, when you saw the voting this week, maybe you thought, 
There's no influence of Christianity anymore. We're just now a pathetic minority. Nobody listens to us. Nobody's interested in us. One of the senators, even a, a Republican, a more liberal Republican, said this week, it shows you that we, we put too much emphasis on those evangelical Christians. Well, we might say to ourselves after this week, it's hopeless. What, what future do we have? Let's, let's go in a cave and hide ourselves, as it were. Let's, let's bury our heads in the sand. Let's be ostriches. The fact is, however, that if we are true believers... We and our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, we are the new humanity. We are God's chosen race, God's renewed image bearers, the people for whose sake the world continues and through whom God carries out his purposes, even if we are the minority. That's a staggering thought. The children of God in the world today are the everlasting humanity destined for the new heavens and the new earth. They are the replacement humanity by the sheer grace of God. And so we see not only that sin progresses throughout history, but grace progresses throughout history. The godly are becoming more godly in our day as well. And the ungodly becoming more ungodly. And God is moving through history in these two parallel ways, you see. But to the godly, He's graciously, covenantally preserving them through Abraham and His seed, the ultimate seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so though they be, though we be minority on the face of the earth, we are reckoned precious if we are believers in the sight of of God. There's a hint of that in this chapter, verses 19 and 20. You notice all the detail given to the land of Canaan, the exact location. It stands out in this chapter, doesn't it? Why such detail? Well, because there the seed chosen to be the channel through which the Messiah would come, would inhabit that country. God would have special favor to his people. God would preserve the line of Shem through Abraham. He would further preserve them and keep them in the land of Canaan until the Messiah would come. And in the Messiah, all the nations of the earth would be blessed as he promised to Abraham. And so God moves with his grace, big steps of grace throughout world history, throughout church history, even till today. And what does that mean for us today, post-elections? What does that mean for us today in the midst of persecution around the globe of Christians? It means that God is in control. It means that His covenant will not fail. It means that He won't desert His chosen remnant. Yes, we may face dark days ahead. Dark days in the political realm. Dark days of more of our soldiers killed in Iraq and elsewhere. Dark days of persecution abroad and at home. But we have this encouragement, congregation, if God be for us, who shall be against us? It is Christ who died. Yea, rather, is raised again and sitteth at the right hand of God to make intercession for us. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So thank God, you see, that believers in Christ have abiding victory. No matter what happens to us in this world, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. 
And so you see, the spiritual world is always better, always better than the political world. Someone said, I heard this week of the political world, no defeat is permanent and no victory is final. Those words struck me. That's the political world. Maybe two years from now, we'll all change around again. No victory is final. No defeat is permanent. You see, but in the spiritual world, Jesus delivers so much more. In His spiritual kingdom, He's defeated Satan once and for all. His victory is final. And from everlasting to everlasting, He is Jehovah, the faithful, covenant-keeping God, eternal victor. And He never reneges on His promises But he gives his covenantal promise to us yet today. I will be your God and you shall be my people. So in the midst of worldwide persecution and post-election, let us say with the psalmist, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Genesis 10 implies one more important thing. Not only rebellious humanity and replacement humanity, temporary replacement humanity, but it also implies ultimately restored humanity. Because you see, we're not done yet with that number 70. When we come to the New Testament, we find that the Lord Jesus, when sending out missionaries all around the world, sent out 70. Luke 10 verse 1 says, After these things the Lord appointed other 70 also, and sent them two and two before His face into every city and place whither He Himself would come. Why 70? Number of completeness. Number of perfection. All the nations rebelled. And they were replaced by the nation of Israel temporarily. But God's design was to work through Israel to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and bring the Messiah. And when He came to live and to die and to be resurrected, the wheel would be turned full circle. And God would then go back out to those nations, those rebellious nations that had rejected them with the great commission to restore them. And so we have Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. God has not given up on the nations of the world. He has not written them off. He has not turned His back on them. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. All 70. The nations that rebelled are the nations to be evangelized. Now that is already hinted at in Genesis. Because when God zoomed in with His camera on Abraham and his family, there was still a universal aspect to it. Abraham was chosen so that salvation would come from a sovereign, gracious God to the whole world. Hadn't God said to Abraham in chapter 12, verse 3, going back to chapter 10, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed? And how beautiful this is. From the very moment when God is selecting one man to be his, he says, Abraham.
Would you like to deepen your understanding of Reformed theology? Check out Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 4, Church and Last Things by Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley. This book will lead you to explore key scripture topics from biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical perspectives. Order the culmination of Dr. Beakey's life's work at heritagebooks.org rst4. Rebellious humanity has deserted me. And I'm going to focus now on you and your seed to bring the Messiah. But when I bring the Messiah, I'm going to spread abroad that truth throughout the earth. And in thee, all these nations of Genesis 10 shall be blessed. I still have all the nations of the world in mind, Abraham. My narrowing my focus to you is only so that I can in due time, in the fullness of the time of the coming of my Son, make the focus comprehensive. And now you see God's camera is on every nation of the world. And He calls every nation and tribe and people to bow the knee before King Jesus. So what God does is He changes Abram's name to Abraham which means the father of many nations. The father of many. And he explains it. Genesis 17, verse 5. But thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations, plural, have I made thee. So at the very heart of the existence of the Jewish people is this universal, worldwide mission calling to the Gentiles. And the very heart of the name of the founder of the Jewish people is this worldwide mission to the Gentiles. Wrapped up in Abraham's very name is the New Testament. Wrapped up in his name is the Great Commission. Wrapped up in his name is the Gospel. Father of many nations. Now the problem was that Israel forgot that over the centuries. They forgot they were to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, even though the Psalms reiterated it and the prophets reiterated it. They forgot the meaning of their father's name, and they became narrow and introverted. Their faith became proud and self-centered. They just viewed rebellious humanity around them as rejects. They just saw themselves as replacement humanity. But they didn't lift up their eyes to see God's vision, that that replacement was only temporary, and that one day it would be restored humanity. So what God does in Genesis 10, he takes time to write down, as it were, a list of the peoples to whom Abraham and his seed will be a blessing. He gives us a summary of humanity that will be restored by the seed of the woman. And so the missionary responsibility of the church today is cataloged in Genesis 10 before we come to the establishment of the chosen people. The task is set before us, before the people are established. But today we are just like the Hebrews. We need this reminder. It's perilously easy for us to become narrow and self-centered. We have such riches. We have, we have such glorious, sovereign grace truths that 
Less than 1% of the people of this world have. It's so easy to become, become an island to ourselves, to be aware of the grace we've received, the special position we are in, to stay in like a holy huddle and say with a Pharisee, I thank thee God that we are not like rebellious humanity all around us. But Genesis 10 says, open your eyes to a needy world. Read Genesis 10 in the context of Matthew 28, 19. What about the nations of the world? Don't they all need to hear this gospel? This gospel of sovereign, glorious grace of God. Doesn't Genesis 10 remind us that God has his elect from every nation? That in heaven there will be a great multitude. No man can number from every kindred and nation and people and language. Even these names that we can scarcely pronounce, God will bring in descendants from these nations into heaven. And so we have in Genesis 10, rebellious humanity, replacement humanity, but looking to restored humanity. Genesis 10 is a threatening, sobering chapter. But it's also an inspiring, challenging, thrilling, comforting, calling chapter. The table of the nations is still there. We are called to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, to all the nations of the earth. So what does that mean for us in conclusion this morning? Well, let me give you three thoughts as we wrap things up this morning. First of all, it means that we are to pray for worldwide revival. We are to pray that God would come and fulfill his promises and do mighty things in the earth. We are to pray for persecuted Christians not only, but for their tormentors and for all the tables of the nations. Secondly, we are to be prepared ourselves for suffering by looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, by considering what he has suffered for us, and by being willing to pay any price to spread the gospel to the nations. Last week, I received an invitation, a formal invitation from a committee, and the letter says... We just spend two weeks ministering underground. We can't guarantee you safety, but would you come? I have that letter on my desk. And yesterday, someone spoke to me and said, you know, we're so protected in our environment. We, We want to be safe all the time. And he began to tell me about how someone didn't accept an invitation to go to, a, to, a, to an underground church out of fear for his safety. I said, well, brother, maybe, maybe you're telling me this providentially because I have a letter on my desk right now. You see, we always want to be so safe, don't we? But maybe we have to go out and reach out to others. Maybe we have to risk our lives sometime for the gospel. Or maybe persecution will come on our doorstep five, ten years from now. Are we willing to pay the price? See, in these persecuted countries, they don't ask, is it safe for us to meet next Sunday? They say, no, we need the word of God. And whether it means our lives, we will gather together with the people of God. That's how much we value church. And they're praying for us that we don't take church for granted. 
and that we don't become sloppy in our Christian walk. Isn't that amazing? Well, let us pray then for worldwide revival. Let us pray for our own preparation for suffering. But thirdly, let us support our modern persecuted brothers and sisters everywhere around the globe. Be informed. Empathize with them. Pray for them. Speak of them. Support them. Go to them with a letter. If you cannot go to them with person, remember them that are in bonds as bound with them. And them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. I didn't realize prior to this week that I'd be preaching this chapter the same Sunday after election and the same Sunday as persecuted Persecution Sunday. But how providentially this all fits together. God calls us not to let our hands hang down post-election in the midst of persecution, but He calls us to use Genesis 10 to stir up ourselves to prayer for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the globe and to move us to thrust ourselves out with the gospel to all the nations by means of mission work, by means of printed material, by means of radio and computer ministries of one kind or another, always remembering His promises in Psalm 72 that all nations will be blessed in Him. So let us not rest until the whole earth is filled with His glory. Remembering always the nation's of the world. Amen. Thank you for listening to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey. If you were encouraged by this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. To enjoy more resources from the pen and pulpit of Dr. Beakey, please visit joelbeakey.org.